Hi, I'm Adam Murray. Subtle Disruptors is about pondering two questions. What does it mean to live well in this moment, given the context within which we find ourselves? And how can we shape the world we live in so that it becomes closer to the one we want to inhabit? I do this by talking with people who you probably haven't heard of, but who I think are embodying a fascinating response to these two questions and doing it in a way that involves subtle changes all of us can make. I want you and I to get as much as possible out of these stories and to feel encouraged, connected and resolute in our own quests of subtle disruption. There's this word, I think it's called perturbation, but it's a process where a seed cracks open and there's a point at which it will never be the same again. And that's like a point of growth. From the outside, it can look like complete and utter destruction. However, it's the necessary process for a seedling to emerge and for a new growth. I'm sometimes surprised how well I can know a person but learn so much about them from a new context. And that's so true of my guest in this episode, Lena Patel. I've known her from so many different contexts, but to sit in her house and meet her partner and share a meal with them, I feel like I know her so much better. Lena has a joy and a ferocity, a joy in people and in life, and a ferocity in standing on her truth. In this episode, she talks about a bunch of stuff and about some real points of turning in her life and what she's working on now and what she cares so deeply about. I'm Adam Murray and thanks for listening to this episode with Lena Patel on Subtle Disruption Through Awakening. All right, shall we make a start, mm, Lena? Sure. My first question is, as always, <laughs> <laughs> where are we having this conversation? Uh, why have you chosen this place? Yeah, so um, we're in my lounge room in my home. Why did I choose this place? I think this is pretty much my seat of power. Yeah. Like I think this is where a lot of good things start and a lot of unnecessary things end. I also think I really like the acoustics in here mm. and it's, it's something we've attended to. So I think there's something about the sound of a place that just comes out through your voice. And so, yeah. Yeah. I just sort of was like, there's, there's this place, it's in my seat of power. It's a seat I um, equally share power with my partner with. It's not solely mine. And uh, I enjoy the resonance in here. Do you say you've attended to the acoustics in this place? Like you've. Somewhat. Maybe not specifically by design, but we've got double glazed windows, mm. which does something for the sound. We've got quite heavy curtains. Like all of these were more for to weatherproof the place, but yeah. they have a really interesting effect on sound. Yeah. And, yeah, I think the way we furnished it makes it comfortable and I think a big part for me, comfort is in, in the sound of a place. Yeah. I agree with the sound as well. I, it is very quiet in here. Yeah. 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 When you say... My seat of power. What do you mean mm. by that? Like literally where you're sitting right now, or is no? It... Just behind you is literally my seat of power. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> the couch is. Um, maybe it's a place. That I think this is more uh, my partner Costa's seat of power is the couch, and mine is the, the chair at that table. What do I mean by it? I mean seat of power in the sense of royalty, and and royalty having a place from which they oversee their polis and they oversee the their city. In 2009, I was working for a large 
organization and they moved to flexidesking or the team I was part of moved to flexidesking. And so since then, and then having left that, I've generally worked in organizations that work in co-working spaces. So for close to 10 years, I've not had a fixed, like necessarily like a fixed place that is entirely my own, that I don't have to negotiate with anyone on. Yeah. And even here, living here, I live with my partner and so the space is constantly being negotiated as well. But there's like a specific spot in our home, which is behind you at that table, that is like a no negotiation space. Yeah. So that is my seat of power. Yeah. (laughs) And do you find yourself sitting there at particular moments? All the time. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Because it's a it's a, a regular chair instead of a couch, it has a sense of um, activity to it. So when I'm sitting in that spot, I'm definitely doing something. I'm not just kind of sitting there to take in the sunlight or to read a book. Mm. Like it is absolutely a place where shit's getting done. Yeah. Yeah. And there's just a lot to do. So yeah. <laughs> so I'm there often. <laughs> Um, I'm going to ask you about a bit more about the seat of power first. Before we do, sure. I think we need to comment on Costa's work and the, uh, <laughs> yeah. the impact on the space, which I've just been given a little insight to in his, <laughs> yeah. in his studio. He's doing some of that work at the moment. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So Costa is a toy maker. So he's a commercial artist and he's a sculptor and he creates miniatures. Uh, the scale he works at is 28 millimetre, which is about an inch. If you can imagine figurines that are about an inch in size and most of his work is historically accurate so they're highly researched and the detail is reflective of whatever conflict was going on. And he's also a toy collector, specifically plastic toys, plastic toy soldiers, and he's a model maker. So he's a military model maker so I don't know if you noticed in his studio there was a lot of yeah, yeah, did, a lot yeah. of a lot of model kits. So yeah. the vast majority of the items in our house are in Costa's collection, I would say. Yeah. He has a remarkable memory. So he actually has a story for every single item. And so that's kind of the negotiation we have in the house is that stuff only stays if it's genuinely bringing us joy. He just happens to have a lot of things that bring him joy. Yeah. Whereas I'm much more on the minimalist side of things. However, so that I don't get completely dwarfed by his collection, I have a few more things that I place around and that's more being territorial about the shelf space. But I think specifically what you're talking about is we have a lot of miniaturised versions of us, of Costa and I. So one of these is um, we've got this like wooden doll's house toys there's a like a wood crafty shop in, in um, Kangaroo Valley and so we now have a Costa figure, a Lena figure and a couch. <laughs> Below that we've got Costa and Lena in frog formation. So I don't know where he found some frog little figurine and I found one on my last trip to Taiwan last year and they're sitting on a couch. There's yeah. a pair there. There's Costa and Lena in like Schleich which is a very high-end plastic uh, yeah, toy yeah, animals. Yeah. So we've got a Schleich pony and a Schleich baby giraffe. They're another Costa and Lena pairing. Back here, I've got a set of Yoga Joes yep. that very are cool. green plastic toy soldiers that have been sculpted in uh, yoga poses. So it was a Kickstarter that a guy did, and it's just like perfect blending because I practice yoga and Costa likes exactly those kinds of <laughs> soldiers. So. Yeah. It made sense for me to have a set. So we've got 
another representation of us there in that there are these yoga joes doing yoga poses and just kind of nearby them is just like a regular green soldier just sort of like walking around. We've got Playmobil, a figure of a girl on a bike, and then there's like a warrior <laughs> of some sort. As I think he might have gotten it because like Aztec looking. Um, Costa has very deep interest in Mesoamerican history, so any kind of characters that sort of might be styled in that way yeah. end up in the house. Very cool. Um, there's one other one around, the gift oh, we really? gave to our um, guests or our friends when we got married. Yeah, wow. That's awesome. It's gold and it's uh, a person riding a bike, a guy riding a bike, and then is that Costa riding a bike? <laughs> yeah, it's Costa riding a bike. And, and, and Lena getting a drink on the handlebars. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. So one of his colleagues in the UK sculpted that. We both really enjoy cycling. And why this is significant is Costa proposed while we were on a, on a big bike ride. Mm. And then at the wedding, there was also, rather than a chauffeur-driven car, we took off on a bike. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that is actually us in oh, one figure there. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. I've, I've never stopped to think about that, but we do create things in pairs. Yeah. And as pairs is representing us. Yeah. 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 <laughs> There's a lot to explore in this room. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so when you were talking about your seat of power, you said it's the place where a few things had started and yeah. things had come to an end. Yeah, what, has, yeah. what started? What has started? I invented my job here. I invented the job of being an interim chief operating officer. And that kind of came out of spending quite a bit of time at that table poring over lots of different career, you know, self-help kind of books to work out my my direction about two years ago. What else has started here? I feel like I've been on a lot of video calls. I've been on a lot of video conference calls in that spot. So there's like a heap of people around the world who know these pictures and paintings behind on the wall quite well yeah. from just having them being in the background. One of the things I'm quite pleased I did start here and there were a lot of conversations here was a tech for non-tech course that um, I run with Code for Australia and that was really a collaboration I wanted to kind of pursue with Inspiral and it was sort of this one, the Inspiral Network in New Zealand and it's this one product or program which was an entry point to finding work with um, particular people. Yeah. I feel like from that, a lot has grown. So from sort of being able to bring that one thing across to Australia and having these very regular calls with my colleague, Kate, who I've, I've never met in person. We've been talking about this stuff for like 18 months, maybe close to two years now. That's a lot of video calls at odd hours from that spot. The other thing which started here, I spent a, an intense amount of time here in this spot. I organised one leg of a book tour for an author by the name of Stephen Jenkinson who has written a book that's up there called Die Wise. And I went from hearing about him for the first time mid-December to we sold out the event three months later. And a lot of that organising and working out, I'd never done this before. I'd never 
organised anything with an international person before yeah. and l- let alone as part of a bigger tour. A lot of that happened here. That started. Yeah, I suppose there's just this other thing of like work is with me everywhere I go because I have my laptop and my phone. Mm. And so my laptop is usually just there. And so I'm kind of just constantly going back and forth to it. So predominantly that's my work with Code for Australia as well as my work with the Centre for Sustainability Leadership. So again, um, a lot of video calls have been had in that spot and kind of connecting and this really interesting thing being part of a distributed team, particularly with the Centre for Sustainability Leadership team, that we were just spread out all over New South Wales and Victoria and really kind of connecting as facilitators on like you know, how do you do deep transformational work with people? But these calls all just happening over video, like for the most part, mm. um, we weren't in the same place at the same time. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like those are the, the like significant starts, which um, I've got a, this diagram I drew of all the things that have started and ended in the last two years, like projects, all the projects which have started and ended. And it was exhausting. Because like, each open bracket and closed bracket, which is how I indicated when something started and finished on a like a vertical, on a horizontal timeline, mm-hmm. I put a huge amount of energy in starting stuff. And there's, I think, ending things just calls a lot of energy from me. Not everybody is like this. It's just my way of working. So, yeah, looking at that picture, I was like, whew, it's a lot of starts and ends. Yeah. In a In a... Relatively, like in two years, it's a, it's a, not that long. Yeah. Yeah. Do you like operating that way? Is that, <laughs> is it a bit too much at the moment or is it, like do you see it as just the, um, the way things will be? At some level I like it because I don't know if it would be happening if I didn't like it. The thing I'm thinking about at the moment is about cycles. So it was interesting even now in, in describing this picture I drew, it's very linear. The way I depicted it is linear. And this is just like a couple of weeks ago, whereas just in the last kind of, in the last couple of weeks, the idea that I might think about how different projects are in different seasons. So something is coming to an end, it's in winter, or something's kind of just about to start, it's in spring. And and so there's this thing around when I reframe it, it's like, oh, I've kind of just been jumping from summer to summer to summer, but all of a sudden these cold snaps of winter. So there's these like cold snaps of winter right in the middle of when there's another spring. It's sort of more the fact that it's like what I imagine it might be like if you lived, if you were always on a plane going between different places all the time and in different seasons all the time, but you never actually in one, you never see one season all the way through. Yeah. So I feel like that's kind of what it's like. Like I, I suppose some people do it and can and it can work and there is something glamorous about that, about just being in multiple seasons all the time. Hmm. Whereas, you know, I think about Costa and his work and he is definitely seeing the one thing from start to finish. I mean, you might have multiple projects on the go, but they're generally all pacing along at the same time. Yeah. Uh, at the same sort of, they're in the same season. Whereas, yeah, my work, I think it's by choice. Like, I, I, you know, I'd be 
lying to myself if I thought it, this had been imposed upon me. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's not the case. <laughs> so I've chosen this. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not sure I would continue to choose this. Yeah. Yeah. It yeah. just sort of, there's, there's like a real sort of hubris about it in a way. Yeah. There's a real sort of arrogance around that you can operate in that way and that it's fine. Mm. Yeah. I'm just not sure. Yeah. <laughs> So I know you from a number of different mm. places yeah. and I've seen you in a number of different places. Yeah. Things like the weekly service yes. and, um, yeah, Code for Australia. Yep. And you're working at Collab Forge yep. as well. Yeah. The main three, actually. Yeah. But I, I get the feeling that there's a number of different other elements to your life. Mm. Mm-hmm. What do, do you, you mean th- other than work? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Maybe, I don't know. But I guess maybe my question is, maybe you can talk about some of the other things in answering it, but what do you see as the thing that, what's the thread that ties mm-hmm. all those things together? Mm. Me would be the first yeah. answer. Yeah. Um, I'm definitely the consistent one in all of that. So we met, actually, I remember we met at um, Purpose the first year it ran. That's right, yeah. Um, I just coincidentally happened to sit next to you in one of the talks. It was the... One of the guys from Dresden. The glasses. Called the glasses. Yeah. Yeah, which I mean, I now have a pair which I love and adore. Yeah, and at the time, yeah, it was just really... I think I've always been living the dream work-wise. What I mean by that is, like, I'm somewhere that I'm genuinely curious about and that is, like, really... You know, lots of things are alive and and dynamic and fulfilling for me, fulfilling my curiosity. So the thread, I would say, there's a couple of things that are um, true for all of those things. I thrive on a steep learning curve. So my career, <laughs> my friend Rob once made this very funny joke about career because there's like the verb to career, you know, like when a vehicle is like... <laughs> Yeah. yeah, that's kind of what my career has been like. <laughs> yeah. So to look at it, I just I'm just like zigzagging all over the place from one thing to the next. But what it is is that um, I really thrive on a steep learning curve, and I'm also quite curious. And so when I see something that kind of, when I see the glimpse of something, if I see like a glimmer on the horizon or in the landscape, like that is the thing that will have my attention. Yeah. Um, anything which has like a little bit of a kind of a spark to it and it's like what is giving off that spark that's the thing I'll kind of make a beeline for mm. so that's one of the one of the common threads I'm also really interested in power and in understanding how power works and unfolds and is at play in everything we do I find that absolutely fascinating it has definitely been if I honestly look back at my career in the private sector it was always about working out where the power lay in a system and actually see how close I could get to it with having no interest to seize it. Just like really interesting, what does power look like up close? Mm. What is like power being used well, not being used well? Like is it possible to use power well? So that's sort of another another thing. I'm also really interested in high-performing teams. When I see like a small group of people doing really amazing stuff, there is absolutely something there that I'm curious about. This is my way of working out the recipe of my ideal team. What are the factors Mm. present? Mm. And so how do you then 
create more of that in the world. Because yeah. I just, I like that. And so I want to see more of that. Mm. So there's that. That's, that's definitely the other thing. Like a small group of people just doing something really amazing. And I have always played in the margin. So I've always, I've always found myself on the edge of the mainstream. Whatever the main thing is, I'll be kind of off in some odd corner with people doing something that's just outside of that, but kind of part of it, but actually just outside of it. Yeah. So for me, at that time, certainly the work CollabForge was doing, which was and still is public sector innovation and collaboration consulting, the work that Code for Australia does, the stuff that the weekly service crew were sort of uh, really bringing to life. All of that stuff is like totally making in the margins. It is something really, really interesting when you're playing at the edge of both what's possible and also what's permitted. That's, I think, a really interesting place to be. And I think I will always find my way to that spot. Yeah. And then obviously you're there long enough and you're like, oh, yeah, I got this. <laughs> it's no longer the margin. Is that what you mean? Or it's... It's no longer my margin. Yeah. Also, you know, if you eat cake every day, you're going to be like, oh, yeah, I need another flavour of cake. No matter how awesome it is, if you're, if you're in it and doing it every day, like eventually something about it will become normal Yeah. for you. Yeah. Yeah. Not normal in the world, just like normal for you. Yeah. 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 Yeah, that's great. There seems to be something else there as well, mm. which is my... Tell me. Oh, uh, please. <laughs> I love this. Uh, it's not that well formed, but it's just a hunch. But there's something about, well, from the bits that I know anyway, yeah. maybe they're kind of summed up by purpose, the purpose conference. Oh, but, yes, yes, but yes. But there's something about yeah, purposeful things, community as well, and yeah. bringing good things into the world. Yeah. It speaks to power and margin as well, yeah. I think. But, yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so funny you say that because for me that's, like, obvious Like, it's so obvious that it almost, like, it wouldn't even occur to me to say it. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely, the values-aligned thing. You know, in some ways, um, I kind of think there's sort of a pendulum motion here in that, for me, I had 17 years in the private sector, roughly half in consulting, professional services, and half in banking and finance. And in some ways, I think there's this, like, pendulum of I owe recompense is that the phrase like Mm. I I feel like I made my money in these places and enjoyed the work I got to do and loved the people I worked with and all of those things like at the team level it was superb but if I think about the systems that my work was supporting like fundamentally I mean we the Royal Commission is storing up all sorts of interesting things and sort of like okay so I wasn't directly involved with anything like that However, I, w- I was essentially part of a system and benefited from a system in which this sort of stuff happened. Mm. Are you familiar with Ursula Le Guin's The Ones Who Walk Away From O'Mellas? It's this stunning short story. And in it, there's sort of this question, like, if you know that the beauty and joy and, and all of this that you have in your life exists because somebody is suffering, do you relish what you have or do you walk away from it? And so, I mean, that's a story I kind of am often returning to at times to kind of go, we're all making a, you know, a bargain. And sometimes that bargain is not the one I want to hold up. Yeah. And so, yeah, I'm, you know, happy to walk away from, well, for me, what was like job security 
and a really loving team environment that I was in, an amazing, like ridiculously amazing network and, you know, access to all sorts of really interesting things within the organisation I worked at. However, yeah, there was this thing niggling and, you know, now now that the Royal Commission is happening and I'm sort of three years out of that particular sector, I kind of just sit here and go, oh, there's like a sense of relief that I'm not even there, that my email address doesn't have it at mm-hmm. whatever.com.au. So I would not have been able to know this un- unless I had left and had been away for all the time I have. So there is a, yeah, this sense that, yeah, I'm benefiting and my family's comfortable. However, at what cost does that happen? The purpose thing is um, I feel like, I don't know, like I'm, I'm doing my time with this. Yeah. Like it just, I have to. Yeah. <laughs> because for a long time I didn't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, for a long time I was values aligned in terms of I was getting what I wanted. Like I was absolutely getting the skill that I wanted or connection that I wanted or an opportunity to learn something that I wanted. But I don't know if I was like at a really fundamental level getting what I wanted in terms of like actual values Yeah. instead of the work I value in the world. Yeah. Yeah. So I, my first lot of jobs were at PwC and Mm. IBM and I remember thinking when I joined them that I was going to learn the game and then turn the game on its head or kind of like fight against the game. Yeah. And uh, it was kind of a good intention at the time. What seemed to happen though was that I got accustomed to the income Mm. and Mm -hmm. the lifestyle and felt trapped I think mm. I think I didn't know how to get out and it was took in two different it took me two tries to get out mm. properly I think mm-hmm. one was you know, moving to Sydney and yep. doing something completely different yeah and one was having a gap year and yeah and yeah yep, yep. just having a complete break so yeah I can identify with that <laughs> but it's, for you how did that moment of thinking I need to make quite a intentional and rather significant change here like what what happened to you <laughs> that's a really easy question to answer because I had an existential crisis yeah and what precipitated that was in 2014 I did the Center for Sustainability Leadership course used to be called the I don't know it had a very elaborate name but it's more recently called the Future Makers Fellowship and it was a eight or nine month long a leadership program essentially personal transformation and everything changed after that. So did that in 2014 and had just a really incredible time of it. It was um, the right time to do it and the cohort that I was part of was the most diverse group of people I've ever spent any meaningful time with. So there was about 24, 25 of us, the most different people, like everybody there was completely different to everybody else. And I had kind of always been under the impression that I got diversity because I worked in a large corporate and kind of just had this notion that it was a diverse place, but not actually having ever had any experience of what diversity of thought might be and a diversity of life experience. In hindsight, it's like so naive of me to think that somehow the kind of people who are employed in banking and finance, to some level, they're more representative of 
the community than professional services. However, I had thought that was, you know, as diverse as you could get. That fundamentally shifted my um, definition of leadership and where leadership can arise from and who can be a leader. Like Mm. that year, I was really challenged to, um, I had so much internalized, I suppose internalized kind of um, misogyny and internalized is really unhealthy ideas that a person who looked a particular way and talked a particular way and carried themselves a particular way, like that's what a leader was. Even though I would absolutely not say that out loud because I would read about what diverse teams can blah, blah, blah. But like when sat in a room and, you know, just seeing how challenged I was by having these other people and going, how on earth did they get chosen for this thing? Like just being like so unaware that this is like completely different models and ways of being a leader that I just had never, ever experienced up until then. And so 2015, yeah, it was sort of like the beginning of the year. And essentially, the best way I can describe it is there's this word, I think it's called perturbation, but it's a process where a seed cracks open and there's a point at which it will never be the same again. And that's like a point of growth from the outside it can look like complete and utter destruction. However, it's the necessary process for a seedling to emerge and for a new growth. That is the best way I can describe this like time of complete chaos where I'd gone from being absolutely certain about a whole heap of stuff, about my work, about the direction my work was going, um, about my relationship, about my idea of myself as a person in the world who might want to do stuff. And yeah, it was this like moment of perturbation where just like everything fell apart. And that was when I was like, I don't think I'm doing the thing I'm meant to be doing right now, (laughs) work-wise. And so for the first time ever, and I'd never done this before, I resigned from my job. I moved out of... um, this home. There was like questions over whether I would still be married. Like every aspect of my life was just like up in the air. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> it was just uh, quite chaotic. And I'm sort of so thankful for the friends who were around me at the time who I think up until then I, I had always been so, you could say, so like together. Like from a very young age, I'd been very together in some way, shape or form. Mm. And at the age of um, 34, 35, and it's like, holy shit, I don't even know which way is up. And to then be surrounded by people who were like completely okay with me in this like complete state of disarray was like a really, really interesting thing because I think for a long time, my idea of myself in friendships was always as the like the more together one. Yeah. Like that was kind of the notion I held. It's yeah. a very, very like misguided notion as well. <laughs> I don't think I was terribly together. So um, in some way, everything that was inside came out onto the outside. All of this, you know, incredible personal change process that that year before had been with CSL all of that was kind of agitating in me and in some ways I I think I had been trying to control how that would be expressed and it kind of just all burst out in one glorious seed burst. (laughs) (laughs) And, yeah, 
Wow. And so, yeah, I left the bank I was working for for about six months. I left the relationship I was in. So I was just like living someplace else, kind of didn't know what I was doing work-wise. I think the best way I can or kind of describe that period was more like a caterpillar in a cocoon <laughs> and it's just super messy and you, who knows what's going on. Yeah. So that six months was, yeah, just like a very, you know, like – the way caterpillars, I imagine what goes on in, inside a caterpillar cocoon, it's just like really messy. Mm. I think it was just um, complete synchronicity that I uh, started at Collab Forge. So I'd been introduced to Collab Forge uh, by my friend Alvaro. He'd been doing some work with them. But it seemed like such a long shot because at the time I was still working full time. They just seemed like I had no model for how they worked a small core team and then another group of people around them as contractors who kind of got called in. Everybody else had another thing going on. So, you know, I'd been permanently full-time employed my whole life. Like, how could you be a contractor and work here but not really work here? And it seemed completely out of my reach. Like, it was just a bit too out there, that mm. sort of work arrangement. But, yeah, and six months later I was working with them. Yeah. <laughs> or maybe even sooner. Uh, a few months later, so that was just like, again, complete coincidence. One of um, our colleagues there was going on maternity leave and I had very similar skills to her. It was, yeah, completely different. The only thing that remained the same between finishing up at the bank and then starting at Collab Forge, the only thing that remained the same was that I caught a tram into the city. <laughs> like yeah. that was it. Yeah. And had, you know, like worked in the city absolutely every other element of what one might define work to be was completely different. Yeah. It was like stepping off a cruise ship, a fully catered cruise ship with heaps of pools and <laughs> game rooms <laughs> yeah. onto a dinghy yeah. in the open sea. Yeah. And you're like, are there life jackets here? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't see any life jackets here. <laughs> what are we doing? Yeah. That was an interesting shift. But but I think I think at times of like for me, like relatively speaking, such extreme stress. I think in some ways the kind of leaps one makes in that state are just you're sort of like, wow, I I never thought I could bridge that gap. Mm. Like a superhuman feat, like, whoa. No way I would have known I could get from point A to point B with that leap. So that's a long answer to your... Yeah, that's great. <laughs> How do you realise your values? Well, I don't know. You have an existential crisis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I concur with a lot of that as well. Yeah. Having gone through something similar myself. But I'm interested in that six months, mm. maybe for people that maybe they're in the middle of it or maybe mm, they mm, think mm. That I might go through that one day. Mm. Like, what are some things that helped you navigate that time and get through it <laughs> and come out the other side? <laughs> yeah. It's only possible to say this because we're, we're in safe harbour, right? Yeah. Like I can kind of comment on what it's like to be in a storm, <laughs> yeah, like totally. when you're in safe harbour. So I think at some level I had forgotten how to look after myself so in that six months, I had moved out of this place where we're sitting and moved in with a friend and essentially was in a share house. And when you're in a share house, you know, you don't have somebody who's going to cook and clean for you in the same way that might kind of happen in a relationship. And you have to negotiate it more just because that's how share houses are. 
I kind of had to relearn some basics about when you're the only one who will make sure that there is nutritious food in the house or that there's stuff you like, that the place is, um, you know, or at least the room you have is like to your life, like, like really having to relearn how do I look after myself? Because I think that's like ground zero for working anything else out. So it's almost like once I kind of worked out how to create healthy routines for myself at like a really fundamental kind of daily basis, you know, daily, weekly basis, it then sort of provides a place from which you might be able to have bigger inquiries. But the best piece of advice I got during that whole time was you don't have to make any big decisions and actually don't. So, I mean, one of the things I did do was just go, I'm just going to New York. And then I just (laughs) decided to go to New York. And like, (laughs) maybe even before I told anyone I was quitting my job. Like, I know there were some things where I'm like, actually, there's this things I wanted to do, which for whatever reason hadn't, and I'm now going to do them. So there can be a temptation to kind of like swing between, well, I don't know, it also depends on your personality, to swing between extremes. Like when you're super, 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 super frustrated, you want to just do something. And it's really important to remain attuned to your sense of power and disempowerment and empowerment mm. because quite often that's where the actions are coming from. And I think because this is just something I read about a lot and immerse myself in, I knew when I was like just dropping a shit ton of money to buy Bjork's entire back catalogue on coloured vinyl, which I still haven't even opened. It's all sitting there in its packaging um, from three years ago. Like I knew when I did that, I'm doing this because like I wouldn't normally do this and it makes me feel good to spend my money however I want and with no consideration of any consequences. There were times when I did that and there were other times when I was like, yeah, I could just be really irresponsible right now. Um, because I've just had been responsible for so long, but I'm probably only doing that to make myself feel better because of this other thing that's happening, like some frustration, maybe while I was still at work or some frustration with my life situation. Mm. So I think in some funny way, in all of that chaos, this sort of years of, you know, a lifetime of interest in power sort of kind of was a bit of a guardrail for me. I completely get how say if people are separating and they can just get vengeful and just spend all the money or something. Like I, I like I just I completely get where that comes from. That when people lose control or lose their sense of power. And for me it was like a sense of control over my own destiny. Like that was what was at risk. It wasn't like I thought I was gonna lose you know, maybe lose my relationship or maybe lose my job, I'm not sure, but it was more like I actually lost control of like what I thought was well in my control, which was my fate, which is, you know, that's a furphy. Having kind of skidded close to that, I'm like, oh yeah, I can see why people would go out and buy a car they don't need mm. or go on an expensive holiday they don't really need, maybe. I don't know. Yeah. So I'd say just be mindful of the your sense of disempowerment when making big decisions. Yeah. And whether you're good. doing it to counter disempowerment or whether you're actually it's coming from a place of empowerment. Mm. Yeah, it's funny. It's quite easy to comment on a storm when you're in safe harbour. <laughs> <laughs> totally. <laughs> uh, 
Oh, so hard when you're in it. Yeah. yeah. I did enjoy it, though. Yeah? Yeah. yeah. Like, I enjoyed, I was at my friend uh, Lara's place. She lived in North Melbourne at the time and had a room to myself. I'm normally quite a neat person and I like everything to be in its place. But in that room, I just, like, everything was just on the floor. And I just, like, came in and I just, like, put my bag anywhere on the floor. <laughs> and then I'd be like, I don't want to sleep in the bed, I'm going to sleep on the floor. Like, turned into, like, a weird teenager kind of, like, because even when I was a kid I was, like, quite neat and very, like, OCD about everything, you know, being in its place. But there was just this real, like, I'm just going to, like, let everything just be messy and not even not even worry about it. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unravel. Yeah, yeah, unravel, yeah. yeah. I've got a few questions for you as sure. we start to wrap up. One of them's <laughs> about going back to teamwork a bit, actually, mm, and yeah. what you've noticed, because I know that a lot of your work is actually helping groups mm-hmm. become good teams, but what are some factors that you've learned through your, your mm-hmm. observations about high-performing teams and mm. uh, what makes a, a group of a few people become really yeah. high performers? One thing definitely is an awareness about emotional labour. Teams who, A, the members of that team are aware of this thing called emotional labour, either consciously or subconsciously or however it happens, seek to share that equally within the team, they do well and they go further because they are sharing the work, especially about the stuff that usually goes unseen and unacknowledged. People who are willing to learn from each other, so people who at some level, allow themselves to be permeable, allow themselves to be affected by those around them and also believe that they can have an effect on those around them. You know, what that means is both the confidence in yourself that you have something to bring to a group as well as humility that you have something to learn. I don't know how to say this, but there are people who just kind of operate with an imposter syndrome on all the time as opposed to having some sense of their own self-worth and value, that's really debilitating. It's really, really debilitating and tiring for everyone else around them. And Mm. it's tiring for them to operate in that state. Likewise, if you are part of a thing and are too arrogant to consider the possibility that you might have something to learn, like that is also really tiring. Both of those are really tiring for both the person and for everyone around them. What else? There's knowing also... Like each person has a particular set of people they work well with and we don't always have this choice around who we get to work with and whether they're our kind of person. But that's kind of one thing I've noticed that, so for example, for me with Code for Australia where I do have choice in the matter more so than anyone else around the team I'm in, there is a particular combination of personalities and ways of working and orientations, which mean we complement each other. So there isn't a whole heap of overlap, which just means we don't really step on each other's toes because we just literally cannot do the thing that the other person can do. That is a really unique thing, which if you're in a situation where you can sort of have a bit more choice in, I would put that more in the realm of like when you choose your collaborators, no what kind of people you work well with. Mm. And there's going to be like cultural stuff at play, gender stuff at play, 
work experience stuff at play, age, ambition, you know, aspiration, all of those things. There's like a version of that that works well for you. It's something that I would, you know, I think is worth being curious about because then you can just, well, I think you find yourself working with people who bring you alive. And so that's how, I mean, like I'm, I'm super aware of this stuff because of I want the collaborations I'm involved with to be fulfilling for everyone. And I know if it's fulfilling for me, like I guarantee it's fulfilling for everyone else because that's generally how that thing works. Yeah. And I think there's like teams who are relentlessly committed to attending to how they're working together, they do well. Mm. So that kind of comes in many shapes and forms in, you know, technology, in tech teams, there might be people who just really kind of do retros with, you know, meaningfully make use of the retrospective process. And in in other teams, it's teams who kind of are checking in every so often on like, how do we want to work together? Are we working in that way together? Or what do we want to do next? Like whatever, whatever form that takes. Teams who are like really value that stuff as much as like the stuff that they're shipping or the stuff that they're doing. I just noticed that they have a bit more longevity. Yeah. Yeah. I can keep going on all night on this. But I, I will stop there because <laughs> yeah, I feel like they're the they're, they're the nuggets. They're the nuggets. Yeah. They're the they're the things like the leaner life hacks on yeah. on um yeah how to kind of sort out within a team mm. the underlying stuff. Two that really resonated with me were the emotional labour one. I've definitely mm-hmm. been in teams where I felt like I've carried a lot more of the mm. emotion of the thing and mm-hmm. it feels like everyone else hasn't bought in as much or something. Like it's Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's a, that's, yeah, I get that. And also the um, building up that self-awareness about the type of people I work well with too. And I know in the past I've sort of drawn little diagrams like the one that you draw about things starting and ending but just drawn out the people that I have resonated with mm-hmm. and what are some of the characteristics that yep. define them and yep. that was a fascinating exercise like some of the things that came up for me were like men older than me yep. who were from a background outside of Australia there you <laughs> go like, was, yeah, like, there you go never, never picked that but, yeah um, yeah 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 so why isn't that interesting yeah I don't know if I've ever sat down and done it like that. I think I have more of a sense of the vibe. There's a particular regard that somebody has of me that is a really felt sense for me. And when I experience that from someone else, I think I'm such a sucker for like surveys and profiles, right? Like I've I've done all of them. <laughs> all of them. I've done them and I and I and you know, this is part of also what informs how I know what I'm looking for. Yeah. A lot of data points. So there's one, the, the VIA survey or the VIA. Strengths. The yeah. strength survey. Yeah. And I remember I did that and at the time I was being like, uh, this was years ago, and one of the things that came up was that thing I value a lot is love. And it was really interesting because at the time in my workplace, like it wasn't the sort of thing you would ever talk about at work, whereas I can now like say uh, it's really important to me that I feel affection from my colleagues that they love something about me Mm. because I want to find a way to love them. This is a really good working relationship for me. That is absolutely not what everybody wants, right? It's like finding people for whom, in a way, love is important, bringing that into our work and bringing that into the work we're doing and bringing that into the working relationship. So it's, yeah, all of these things, you sort of put them together and realise some of the things you need people who 
are like you and some things you need people who aren't like you. Yeah. I do want to check in with emotional labor. What's your understanding of that? Because I'm not sure if we're using the term in the same way. Maybe not. Yeah. So for me, it's, I'm about to say, carrying the mental load, which maybe isn't emotional, but joining all the dots and carrying the heart of the thing, like Mm. making sure someone's thinking about the whole system and carrying that. Like that's what it is for me. Yes, it is that. And I would add to it, it's all of the things to hold the thing together as well. Mm. So all of the gestures of civility that make the thing worth coming to every day. Yeah. So it's things like bringing water into a meeting room, clearing mm. the glasses afterwards because somebody's going to be using the room immediately after or, you know, you just kind of need to do this anyway, or remembering people's birthdays or remembering people's schedules like what days so-and-so in and not in and what location and and then essentially organising things with reference to everyone's individual preferences. Yeah. Like where will we go for lunch and, you know, who likes what and all that kind of stuff. And on... Other projects, it can be things like who's taking all the meeting notes and who's like documenting the team's process and who's kind of keeping some of that necessary stuff in place, like who's actually taking care that there's like a tidying off the process as the work is happening. Well, this is like totally my made up job. Um, I'm I'm on emotional labor watch quite often. And it's something I look out for and I'm asking for in interview, like right from the interview stage. The way a person um, conducts themselves in this, you know, initial sort of set of discussions and how they are in space in relation to me and in relation to what might need to, you know, and I think this is the, the like also being a facilitator, I just will notice a lot more stuff. One of the things I've done in the past is we have a Friday lunch where the whole team sits together for lunch and depending on where somebody's at in the interview process, kind of invite them to come to lunch and then just kind of see, well, how do you, like, do you pick up after yourself? Mm, mm. Because if you're not picking up after yourself in a situation where you're supposedly trying to make a good impression, like, you know, at any point, this is when you would do it. Yeah. And if you don't, then, you know, I just kind of make a note of it. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. when people aren't picking up after themselves in these small ways, it has massive implications on projects in bigger bigger ways. Yeah. So it's just a thing that I keep an eye on and do chat to my colleagues about. Mm. And no one's trying to be malicious or no one's trying to be like, I'm going to make you do more work. It, they just sort of are unaware yeah. that actually you know your choices are creating more work for someone else. I know that there's been a bit of work I think done around families as well and who carries the emotional labour in families and predominantly it falls to yeah. the mother. Yeah, so they're yeah, doing it twice in the office. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And at home, yeah, or can do. Two more questions for you. You mentioned that you follow your curiosity mm. and if there's something dazzling on the... On the horizon, you're drawn to it. Yeah. Is there anything that's catching your attention at the moment? Like yeah, any it new is. things? Yeah. I don't understand blockchain. Yeah. I don't understand how blockchain technology is built. I understand blockchain sort of conceptually, but not really. So that's what's catching my attention, and I'm signed up to do a introduction to blockchain development. Cool. Course and yeah, a great thing that uh, Code Like a Girl are offering. So. It's great. It's like it's going to be all women and possibly some girls as well because I think it's open to younger people as well. And it's like no coding experience necessary and I'm not a developer. I work in a community of developers but I I don't know 
how to do any of it. So I figure I'll just jump straight to Web 3.0. So that's catching my attention. The other thing that's catching my attention is work in the realm of what is known as social labs, which have been around for a while. And it's a particular way of making changes on social issues. And so I'm, I'm interested in, I guess it's in the realm of social innovation, but a process which goes over a really long period of time. So rather than something just like you come in and you do something for six months and, you got, and you're done, it's more like what does it mean to be in a place and work with a group of people over a really over a really long range, like four or five years? And what kind of system change can you make when you work at an individual person level? So I'm really interested in, as always, really interested in systems and where the leverage points are. But I'm kind of like really curious about this longevity piece. What does it mean to kind of stay with the same bit of work and stay in the same context but do different things over over a long longer period so that's catching my interest and the other thing is I'm coming into a clearer awareness of how much of a community builder I am and so that's always been my way wherever I am I will form community or I will seek out community And I'm sort of interested now in almost like where are the unlikely places that community might form and then how do you make it happen there? It's kind of like um, can particular plants grow on the side of a freeway if you just chuck some seeds out there? Like is that that possible? Like what? Yeah, so I'm just really interested in um, I know I can make community in the places I want to be and with people who want to be in a community, but is that possible everywhere or are there particular sort of places that are more suitable for this notion of community? Mm. Yeah. Cool. So that one's a that one's a like, let's go look at where the oil slick is and see if you can yeah. create community there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. The last question is about yourself and tying it back to the theme of the podcast, subtle disruption. Mm-hmm. And what's a small thing that a subtle thing that you do in your own life or you've done in your own life that's mm. had a, a big effect or is mm. an important part of um, what you do on a daily basis or yeah, yeah, a small yeah. thing that has a, a big part in your life? So I've been studying the Alexander Technique for mm. about nine years now. The teaching lineage I'm in, um, so I had the, the great joy of hanging out with my teacher's teacher, um, so my teacher's teacher is a woman by the name of Kathy Madden and she's out in Australia once a year and runs workshops and I hung out with her recently and I've been hanging out with Kathy once a year for 9 years and fundamentally the Alexander technique in the way she teaches is it's a very simple intention it's a very simple thing and I and I won't give you an Alexander technique <laughs> Like the podcast, but it's super simple. It's so simple, it's ridiculous. And the analogy I would say, it's like saying you want to learn how to play the piano and you can have one lesson and you will know how to play the piano. Might be one sort of simple tune or it can be a lifelong thing. So for me, my experience with the Alexander Technique is, is in that realm. It is an endless lifelong question and there's just something so... So like equally satisfying and tantalizing about that. Like I could kind of just keep asking more and more and more and more questions and I will just like 
be delighted in life more and more and more. It's almost like, what is my appetite for delight in life? And that is sort of, that will answer my my question around the applicability of the Alexander Technique to the pursuit of excellence, which is um, what I apply it to. So yeah, the simple thing within is starting with asking, um, what do I want? So that is sort of the basis of that teaching is, is starting with asking, what you want. And that's a want from, you know, I'm sitting on a couch and want to do something else or want to sit and read. And I wonder about that through to what do I want in my life? Like, what is the vision of my life? And so, yeah, there's, there's this, this beautiful elegance in how the technique as I'm continuing to learn and, and evolve my practice in is applicable from the, you know, I want to reach over and pick up a corn chip through to I want a future that's different to the one I I see now. Mm. So I encourage people to kind of find, it's sort of like my, um, it's it's like a fidget spinner in a way. It's like this thing that will just always have something to come back to and always have a sense of something dynamic there. Yeah. It's like a soul fidget spinner. Lena, thank you so much for sharing so much about your life and thank your journey. You. And thank you for having me over for dinner as well. <laughs> yeah, we're going to eat now. Yeah. <laughs> um, great questions. Uh, thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how you remembered them <laughs> as they came to you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good question um, remembering. Cool. It's been great. Thank you. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening. If you'd like to get in contact with me, the best way to do that is through email to adam at subtledisruptors.com. Thank you so much to the people that do send me emails. I really appreciate the encouragement. I really appreciate the guests that you suggest as well. Many of them have turned into actual guests on this show. So if you do have any suggestions, please send them through. Something else you could do if you can find the time is to rate and review the podcast on iTunes or through other platforms that you might use. It's pretty easy to do through the app or on your phone or on your laptop or computer. I hope you feel a little more encouraged, connected and resolute in your own quest to subtle disruption. And one day, I hope to hear about your subtle disruption as well. Bye for now.